0: Children, I want you to know I could hear you singing when we were singing, and you sounded really, really good. So I want to encourage all of you to continue singing. Now, one thing about the singing is I don't mind clapping my hands, but my problem is I'm never sure what's the upbeat and what's the downbeat. So basically if uh, i try to clap my hands loudly i'll end up making the whole praise team go psycho basically with that so if anybody knows how to do it do it feel free but uh, anyway i want to appreciate all of you guys for for singing especially you kids because we could hear you Uh, we're going to be in acts chapter 6 today Uh, this is absolutely such a fascinating passage and i know all the scriptures are but this one is so interesting to me because i don't know about you but i love to see how things tick i'm not an engineer I don't claim to be, but uh, I still am fascinated by how things tick, and so I am very interested by how things ticked in the early church. Like, how did they do what they did, and, and why? And so this passage to me today is just—it's a gold mine of just interesting things. And what I'm going to do today is uh, start at verse one, and we're going to go to verse nine. And uh, you might have noticed last week I was in Acts chapter five, but did not complete the chapter. And what I'm doing here, first of all, you see today's slide. uh, I'm drawing a blank, guys. I'm really sorry. Uh, Is the slide available? Great. So we have seven men. Uh, There are their names, and I'm calling them the Munificent Seven. (laughs) That's a mouthful. Now, if you're a geezer like me, you know kind of what this is a play on words on, right? The Magnificent Seven. Uh, Anybody want to admit that you're a geezer like me? No, that's all right. Uh, Munificent, though, means uh, generous, very generous and bountiful. And that's what we see with this group here, so it's a play on words. And I love to watch how uh, the early church does what they do. So what I'm going to do this morning, I'm going to read to you in a moment uh, the passage, and I'm going to go back and explain it. But I want to share with you next week, I'm going to drop back into Acts chapter 5 to the part I did not cover because I'm going to do a three-part series back to back to back that will be in the sections in this part of the book of Acts where people start to get persecuted. And what I'm going to do is I'll talk about the scriptures, we'll go through them, but then also I'm going to give you some thoughts about persecution from my experience uh, working with the Voice of the Martyrs and, and gone around the world to see what's going on with the persecuted family that we have. So, what I'll do is I'll I'll sprinkle in some things regarding how persecution happens and and what we need to know. So next week will be counted worthy out of Acts chapter 5. The week after that, Acts 6 through 7, I'm calling Thin Red Line. And there's a thin red line, prophets, Jesus, Stephen, Bonhoeffer, whoever, Jim Elliott, and us. Are we there? In fact, somebody messaged me this morning and I mentioned something Doug had said some time ago about, you know, get ready, persecution may come down the road, and, you know, certainly uh, there's a lot of shaking going on, there's a lot of talk about prophecy, you know, all those kind of things, and I don't know, but I'm just saying that that's something that's in the back of our minds, so it'll be thin red line, and then uh, Acts chapter 8, out of the kettle, the reason for that is what God did to get the church to expand. And uh, that's the story of Stephen. So we'll see that on August 14th. So for today, we're in Acts chapter 6. Let me read it to you, give you a little bit of background and then explain some things. And it's just awesome. So Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now in those days, these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. Now I'm going to stop it there. We will come back to it um, in a couple of weeks, but uh, I'm going to stop it right there. So let's, uh, let's dig into this passage. There's a lot here, and more than meets the eye, and so I'd like to share that with you here. I just think it's fantastic. So in verse 1, the disciples are increasing in number, and we're at the point now, honestly, where I cannot tell you how many disciples were there in the church, but it's thousands, it's thousands. And like I've said, it may have been 20,000 plus. It just continues to grow. So I could try to give you a number, but it wouldn't be accurate. I, I have no idea. I just know that it's big, it's big. In a town that's not as big as you think, and so the disciples were increasing and growing, and then a complaint rose up. Um, so the wine skin of the church, if you will, is stretching. And what we have here is not a problem of racism intentionally. It's a management problem. It's a structural problem. So I know when I use the word racism, all of a sudden everybody tenses up and bristles. Um, we're among friends today, so relax, okay? There's no reason to tense up but I just want to be honest with the passage and and treat it in its context and treat it honorably. But the Hellenists among them would probably think it was racist, at least some of them, and the Hellenists, that word Hellene means Greece, and so these are people that are Greek background, and you might remember in history, not that you were there, but in the 300s BC, Alexander the Great went all over that region, massive uh, amount of travel and conquering he did, and And he conquered worlds all the way up basically to the Himalayas. And uh, at the age of 32 in Babylon, he died. He was either poisoned or he just drank himself to death. But all of that as a young man. And when he did that, it spread the Greek language all over the place. It spread Greek culture. And so the Greek culture started to influence not only Israel, Palestine, but Egypt, you know, Alexandria, which had a monstrous library. And so it became the thing. And so we have this massive influx of Hellenists in that region, and we have people that have come to Christ that are Greek in background, at least with their language, and they've come into Jerusalem. And what's important to know is that these are probably diaspora Jews, which means they were converted to Judaism, and they came in from other places to Jerusalem, and some of them came in because they wanted to be around pure Judaism. Now, to illustrate that, it's a different situation, but it reminds me of in the 1500s, late 1400s, I think, uh, Martin Luther, early 1500s, uh, was a priest. He was a Catholic priest, a monk, and a scholar. And actually, whatever you know about Martin Luther, let me just say this, he was absolutely brilliant, mentally brilliant. He was amazing. And he was a devoted Catholic, and uh, he would flagellate himself. He would whip himself. They would find him unconscious in his cell. Because he wanted to honor God and he was raised that basically self-abnegation was the way to do it. And he, you know, that was his extreme. And he had a chance to go to Rome and he was going to see the, the mothership, the holy church in Rome. Which at the time was building St. Peter's. And he was so excited to get to Rome and when he got to Rome he saw a cesspool of corruption. And it had a huge impact in what later became uh, his... 95 theses, which were nailed to the wall, but also mailed out, or nailed to the door, but he mailed them out. That's how they did it back then. And Luther was not trying to destroy the Catholic Church. He was trying to reform it. And then they clamped down on him really hard. You know, they went way hard on him, and what happened was that ended up causing the Reformation. So that's obviously a ticklish area to get into, but what I wanted to say out of all that was Luther was looking for the perfect place that he went to Rome, and I think these people... We're looking to get to pure Judaism and they come in and then many of them come to Christ, which is just amazing. So that's what's going on. And as the church grows, what you see is it takes on new ethnicities, new races, if you will, new backgrounds. Starting at the day of Pentecost, the church has always been diverse. It's a natural byproduct of God's heart for the nations. God's heart is to bring all the nations to Jesus Christ. And like Paul said, In eternity, we're all going to bow on our knees to Jesus Christ. Whether you're a believer or unbeliever, you will bow at some point in time, right? And uh, you want to be on the right side. But that's why one culture has to go to another to share the gospel. And really, that's what missions is. And when you think about it, it means that a Christian must go out of his or her culture and out of his or her comfort zone to go to another culture to share the word. And uh, sometimes that gets pretty uh, hostile, but they're obeying the Lord, right? And they're trying to bring new cultures to Jesus Christ. It's fascinating to see the different cultures in our area. But I want to go back uh, for a second. Here we are in the book of Acts with the body in this case. That is a model, like I've shown before, of Jerusalem at the time of King Herod, time of Jesus, the apostles. And this is a model that actually is a really big model, That it is a model that's not an authentic photograph from the first century, right? <laughs> right? You do get that. Okay, so you see this model, and what it shows you is that on the temple mount there above the Kidron Valley, you have this massive temple complex, and the temple is that large box there that's tall, but that whole complex was built around it and people would gather there, and certain parts of it, women, women could go into only certain parts, same thing with Gentiles, and then, of course, the priest, high priest, into the Holy of Holies. You know, there, there were restricted areas, but the early church was gathering in the colonnade that would be in the lower part of the picture. But around it, you see the town, and so this is the city of Jerusalem bringing in cultures from all over, mingling together, and I showed last time, and I think it's important to see that this week, that the economic classes then a lot different than today where the vast majority were in the lower class. Only a few were upper class and very few in the middle class. So it was predominantly poor and people had to be taken care of, especially widows. Uh, so we have 12 apostles, a body of 20,000 plus, that's what we've got in the church. And we saw in, in Acts chapter two, the day of Pentecost, we saw that people had come in from the nations all around and we're there on Pentecost, but it just shows the intermingling of cultures. So you have to look at this in terms of the cultural mingling. And this is fascinating. And I don't, I don't know how many of you are interested in this or if this has been your experience, but for me in ministry, it's been huge. And when Susie and I were in Atlanta, we lived for a couple of years in Midtown Atlanta, which put us in such a multicultural area. We loved it. We were two blocks from the world center of hip hop. We were a few blocks from the largest gay community in the Southeast. We were like three blocks from the largest mosque in the Southeast. And of course you had this, the inner side the perimeter part of Atlanta is heavily African-American with the legacy of Martin Luther King. And we weren't too far from there either. So there's this massive intersection of cultures, which was absolutely fascinating. And one thing I learned, and I just say this, I'm saying it objectively is, Uh, in our ministry, and I've got a lot of friends in the African-American ministry community there, and we intersected quite a bit, including some who were involved in the civil rights movement. And um, I learned from there that in the African-American community, salvation to them is very communal. The community comes to Christ. That's hard for us to relate to because we're very individualistic, but you think about even in the book of Acts, for example, when the Philippian jailer came to Christ, what happened? His whole household. Uh, Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. What happened when Cornelius came to Christ? His whole household. It was very communal. And so it's a, it's a different dynamic. Uh, you go overseas, you see the same kind of thing. So yeah, I know you get it. So what we have is it's not that they intended to make it this way, but we have different cultures coming in. And in verse 1, you see two different cultures. And the point is not to take a side. The point is to say they were trying to mingle together. And if you primarily speak Greek, that in itself is a a barrier to those who do not speak Greek, and the same thing with Hebrew or Aramaic. So what happens is the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking believers in the church, start to grumble. That's what the word gongousmas means. That's the word here. They're murmuring. Some people think the unbelievers in the city saw the church, and they stirred this up. I don't know if that's true or not. They were trying to drive a wedge in the church. I don't know. That would have greatly slowed the growth. But one way or the other, there's a complaining because the Hellenist widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. Probably it was more than just food. It could have been clothing. It could have been other things as well because you see how poor people were. They had the instinct from God to take care of each other, and that's what's going on. And the Hellenists were seeing that their widows were being neglected, and so therefore there's a bias going on. And I mean, I am not trying to stir anything up today. I just want you to think about this, that it's fascinating to look at the intersection and the clashes of culture in Acts chapter 6. So the church is not purely Jewish, really, at this point. And I wonder about it. Are these new additions? Uh, were any of them there the day of Pentecost? Uh, were they in the early church 120, the first group? How did they come to Christ who preached to them? And they may have tended to group together because of their common backgrounds. I mean, that's what humans do. I, I, that's just what we do, right, around the world. We're more comfortable with our own people, right? Yes? And it's like, that's not necessarily wrong, but in the body of Christ, we've gotta reach out to others as well. And so it's not like one or the other, it's like we need to come to grips with that. We will never bring anyone to Christ if we're not willing to touch another culture in some way. Right? We don't need missions if we're never going to intersect with another culture. Who is the father of modern missions? Well, Paul, Paul actually is a good biblical answer, but let's just go past the New Testament. You got me. Past the New Testament. Who is considered to be the father of modern missions in the Protestant church? William Carey. And when you read the story of William Carey, which I encourage you to do, it was rugged. He went to India, and uh, there were a lot of good relationships and good things there. His wife did not want to go. There was a separation between them. And yet, he's called the father of modern missions. Um, All of this does tie together with persecution, which we'll see. So, Carey had to go to another place, learn another language. Carey was brilliant, by the way. He was like Martin Luther. He would do a chapter of reading and translating a chapter of Greek every morning before breakfast. Anybody in here do that? Feel free to raise your hand. So... um, Richard Longenecker said, the prejudices before, formed before conversion are more often carried over into Christian life, too often the unworthy more than the worthy. Some of the problems between the Hebraic Jews and the Hellenistic Jews of the church must be related to such earlier differences and prejudices. We carry our prejudice with us. And if the Hellenists spoke mostly in Greek, that may mean that they had separate meetings within the Christian community something that's often not seen. So that kind of helped keep the wall up because they were with people who spoke their language. And that could have stirred up some of the resentment. I think I mentioned this, but if not, uh, a couple months ago I was on a Zoom call with some guys talking about the racial issue and most of the guys were former Marines, so it's not like whatever you would imagine. Uh, Most were African-American, but the leaders, a friend of mine who's an attorney who is Asian, and he's experienced persecution. He's experienced mistreatment because he's Asian. Those guys were giving their perspective. I mean, one or two of them were drill instructors in the Marine Corps, but they were talking about how they had felt the prejudice and the racism. So it really depends on your perspective, isn't that the thing? It's like I, as a white man, could say, well, I don't think that's happening, we've gone past that, but maybe a black man would say, well, no, you say that, but it hasn't happened for me. And I saw the pain when I was in Atlanta. I was in a meeting one morning downtown, and the speaker had been in the civil rights movement years ago, and he said, on that street corner right outside the window, I was beaten by the police. So, Again, I'm not trying to stir this up. I am trying to point out that we know this happens. And so for the body of Christ to thrive and for the body of Christ to grow and come together and be the kingdom body God wants, we have to learn how to mix with different cultures, right? That's the book of Acts. So anyway, uh, moving on. The widows needed help from the community, and that's a biblical value all the way back to day one, just about, is that you take care of your widows and your orphans. And so it's fascinating what happens. All that was just verse 1, but hang in there. We should be out of here by 6 o'clock tonight, so don't worry. Um, Verse 2, and the 12, that's the 12 apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, okay, I'm going to stop there. (laughs) I don't know how they did this practically because you're talking about potentially thousands of disciples coming. But this is a team effort that now is taken over by the 12. But watch what happens. The 12 get the group together, and they say, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, I don't think they're trying to be condescending toward waiters and waitresses. But what they're saying is that our function is to preach the Word of God and to pray. Now, how did they do that? I thought a lot about this. Um, I assumed the apostles had the full-time ability to do this. And what they would do is they would go from group to group, and they would do kind of a hybrid. Because remember, at this time, did they have the New Testament? So everything they taught from a biblical perspective had to be based on the Old Testament. So they were helping people understand what the Old Testament was really saying about Jesus. And they were tying it all together. The Holy Spirit had shown them how it fit together. And they were doing that. They were explaining things, but they were also calling people to come to Christ. It's just fascinating to look at the differences. I cannot read, for example, Isaiah 52 and 53 about the suffering servant, and not be slapped in the face every time I read it about the fact this is Jesus Christ, right? But if you're an Orthodox Jew, you will look at that passage and you would say it's referring to Israel. And I'm like, how can you say that? And the minds are blinded. So the apostles are urgently trying to call the nation to repentance, and they're trying to explain to them how it works while they still have time. And I think it's fascinating here that what we see is that spiritual and material concerns are intimately related in the body of Christ. And one affects the other. So understand, when I talk about the spiritual concern and teaching them the word and all of those things, and then also taking care of their needs, What I'm saying is it's not one or the other. That's a false dichotomy. It's both together. That's God's value. And the apostles were called to teach the word of God and to pray, and they should not be distracted from that. God would not be pleased if they walked away from their calling, and the gospel would not grow as fast for sure. Other people were called to meet this need. Now, we're going to see in a moment the word for deacon, in effect, um, the elders would be appointed later. That does not happen yet. I, it's not an exact thing to say apostles and elders. They're, they overlap. It's not the same. But what does impress me is I think the apostles are full-time with this, and the elders of the church are part-time, and I'm just blown away with how much they do and have to do. I respect that so much because they're part-time. They've got jobs and families, and they're doing the best they can to lead the church. I think the apostles are full-time. And the apostles would say they're called to preach and uh, they should do that, and others would have to take care of the practical details of the ministry. That's good stewardship and good leadership. So Daryl Bach, uh, professor Dallas, said, they should do what God has called them to do, namely teach and witness. They cannot and should not do everything in the church, but they should not neglect preaching. And to give up here, that word means to Neglect. So it's fascinating to watch the body come to Christ here. I just think it's just awesome. And I think it's fascinating to say they called in a full number of disciples. I don't know if they had a megaphone or what, but uh, here we go. And so as they speak to them in verse 3, they say, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute. Okay, so I'll ask you, who's given the order? The apostles. The apostles. Who's doing the work? Have you noticed this? They tell the body to choose the seven. It's a joint work between them. The apostles could not do it all, and nor should they. But the apostles trusted the body, got them into the decision-making, and said, hey, you do it, you take care of it. Now, some people will look at this passage historically and say, this is where deacons begin. That's really not quite accurate. So sometimes they're called proto-deacons, which means first, you know, these are the first deacons. But again, that's probably not not accurate either. The word deacon comes from the Greek word to serve, diakoneo, and diakonos is a servant. diakonia is serving, basically service. So we're not quite ready to establish the office of deacon or deaconess but they are to serve. In fact, what's funny here is the word for serving, uh, the deacon word, is used for the apostles because their ministry, their service is to serve the word. And so they are called servants of the word. I think it's fascinating. So the body gets to pick. Now, this is a bit of an aside. It's just fascinating to me, consulting with boards. Uh, One of the leading board consultants in the country, known everywhere. Uh, says you should justify more than seven on a nonprofit governing board. Um, I've had other people say five. I mean, I, I think there's got to be some flexibility, you know, five, seven, nine, whatever, whatever fits. But the idea is it doesn't get super big. It doesn't get too big. It's functional. And what we see then is that they tell them for whatever reason, whether it's because seven is a biblical number or what, in some countries, some cultures, it was the perfect number for a council, but they tell them to pick out seven men of good repute. I think that's that's just fascinating. So let's talk about that for a second. The duty of the apostles, pray and minister to the ministry of the word. The seven, we've seen the names here. All right, what do you notice about each one of these names? Rich, I know your group talked about it. What'd you find? They're Greek. They're Greek with a problem with the Greek-speaking widows, they're going to end up choosing men of Greek background, people who can relate. I just find that absolutely fascinating. Qualifications of the seven. Here it is. and I think this is a simple summary of the qualifications for this group of good repute. Why to be of good repute? Because they're going to connect with the cultures. They're going to connect with the community. The community is watching how the church deals with this. They are full of the Holy Spirit. That's something we see throughout the book of Acts. We're going to see it with Stephen in just a second. They're full of wisdom. And so you look for people with these qualifications, something we should always consider when we look for team members here. Note that the apostles were not the only ones with wisdom, and they weren't the only ones with the Holy Spirit. And wisdom is so important. For example, Joshua was given, Deuteronomy 34 says, Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. When Solomon was becoming king and God said, Solomon, I'll give you whatever you want, what did Solomon ask for? Wisdom. God said, you have chosen wisely. So we see it throughout the Bible, and Solomon himself wrote in Proverbs 8, the great uh, passage on wisdom, does not wisdom call, does not understanding raise her voice, for wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. If we had a country full of wisdom, we would not be in the issues we are in now. Imagine if everyone in the United States had godly wisdom what a difference it would make. Wouldn't it be awesome? So they tell them, find men of wisdom and the spirit and of good repute. You pick them out, and then we'll commission them. You know, it's like going on a mission trip. We'll bring a team up here, and we'll pray for them, we'll commission them, and that's what they're going to do. But verse 4, and I mentioned Rich earlier, this is Rich's favorite verse here. He has told me that like 10 times. So I was going to say this is the the rich Walker Memorial verse, but that would mean he's died. He hasn't. So I'm just going to say it's the uh, rich honorary verse here. So now for the rest of my life, whenever I see this verse, I will think of rich. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word because that's our calling. And I love it. What they said pleased the whole church gathering and they chose Stephen. All right, I've read the names before. A man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, just notice uh, he's the only one with a character description. But that doesn't mean the rest of them didn't have this, but they mentioned this about Stephen. And Nicolaus, and a proselyte of Antioch, which might mean that Nicolaus came to Christ um, as a, or came to Judaism as a proselyte, and then came to Christ, but we don't know for sure. So at verse six, they put him before the apostles and they pray and they lay their hands on them. Again, Daryl Bach said, working in the community did not lead to a failure to engage those outside with the gospel, as the seven both served the church and preached to those outside. Think about Stephen went and preached. Philip went and preached. The Ethiopian eunuch story. The scene also makes clear that to solve the community's problems, please hear this, to solve the community's problems, ministry must extend beyond those who are called primarily to preach. John Stodd said that. The solution of the community showed that in the midst of growth new problems sometimes require fresh structures to cope with them one of the concerns i have about the church in general is that church has become a spectator sport All right, we got any baseball fans here football fans you love to go to the stadium right now when i was a kid i had a i had a desire for my life my desire would have had me playing shortstop for the los angeles dodgers I did not quite get there. I love to play baseball, but they never called me up. So now when I go to Dodger Stadium, and by the way, Susie has instructions that she does cremate me, that she's to spread some ashes on the infield at Dodger Stadium, and then run like mad away from security, but anyway. I'm a spectator. My presence has no impact on the game. And I'm afraid that what's happened is the church has become spectator sport. And I, personally, I think he, we can trace it. And I'm, th- this is about churches in general. Relax. I think we can trace it way back. To in the early church, they didn't have church buildings, and then they adopted the Roman basilica building, which was a rectangular building. And eventually, the bishop of the church was put in the middle in a chair. Which, by the way, the Latin word for chair, cathedra. We get a name from that. And the church sat around and watched the expert and it became a spectator sport so my message to you this morning is don't be a spectator be an engager in the work of god and that's what they're doing here and if everybody was unleashed to minister in their own way with the gifts god has given we'd see a powerful impact that's the deal so so much of the issues that churches have around our country are related to the fact basically We turned our churches into spectator sports. Anybody agree with me? Amen. So, um, the beautiful thing when they do this, the church does not fragment along ethnic lines. They work together. Which may be essential, partly because they are about to enter an era of persecution. Some people will say, if you want to see the most segregated place in the world, go Sunday morning to churches, 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. Maybe. That's not always true. And and I mean, that pretty much applies to society. For those of you that have been in the military, one of the beautiful things, the military brings everybody together. Uh, and And you have to work together. But, you know, churches, we're still learning how to do that. So anyway. So let me fling this at you and see what you think. This is a good reminder that the body of Christ transcends any human boundaries, which means that, for example, at the heart level, I hear this, you have more in common with a Chinese believer than you do with an unbeliever fellow member of your political party. Kaboom. Is that true? Only if you believe the New Testament. <coughs> Usually when I say that, I, I run for the door. <laughs> All right, verse five. We got to move on here. Um, Westside Church is coming in a few minutes. All right, so verse five. Stephen is the first one mentioned. We're going to see his wider ministry later on. And then we have the others, and they are commissioned by the apostles. All right, so I want to run you through something here. It's really interesting. You see this? It says Stephen. 34, that was not his baseball number. 34 is the year he was martyred. That was taken from the martyr's wall, the martyr's memorial wall at the Voice of the Martyrs in Oklahoma. And I used to pass by that wall every day. I'll show you other pictures of it. You'll see a lot more in you know, the coming weeks, but I would pass that every day and I would think. Stephen Jim Elliott is there. Uh, Chester Bitterman is there. I mean, you go on and on and on. Bonhoeffer's there. James is there. I mean, all these guys. You talk about a sobering uh, slap in the face regarding your spiritual commitment. You walk by that every day. And Stephen, when he's being martyred, said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. We're not at Stephen's death yet, but you can see at the end of this passage how we're going to lead to it. It's amazing. And I think it's awesome because there's a lot of times we'll talk about groups and say, it is impossible to reach these people. Well, you would think it'd be impossible to reach the priests in Jerusalem, but take a look at this in verse 7. The word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem... And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Isn't that awesome? That even priests were affected. Uh, the scholar Jeremias said has has pointed out there were perhaps as many as eight, many as eight thousand ordinary priests and ten thousand Levites, divided into twenty-four weekly courses. Now you remember that if you remember reading Luke and you read about Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, Zechariah. Um, you you see that there. But imagine what it would have taken for a priest to come to faith. I mean, it's awesome that they would have been walked through all of this. It's like, you know, you've been misdirected. You need to focus this way. But all this happens. There's multiplication. Satan is going to jump in. And so verse 8, like I said, Luke foreshadows all the time and he's foreshadowed Stephen. And now we see Stephen here. He set us up to be able to see what will happen with Stephen. Full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. In fact, you've got grace and power does not mean you won't be persecuted. In fact, it will happen to him. Verse 9, some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and Cyrenians and Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. So this is probably that group. Freedmen means they were former slaves, and this is that group that came to Jerusalem looking for the place of purity and all of a sudden, they run into this dude, Stephen, who is preaching a gospel that seems to attack it to them, and they are going to fire back, and Stephen is going to lose his life. I'm sorry I just told you the rest of the story if you didn't know what was going to happen. Now, that nobody knows for sure the population of Jerusalem at this time, but I want you to see this. This is amazing. Speculation is that it was anywhere from 20,000 to a million. A common estimate for the population of Jerusalem at this time was 40,000. Now, I have said that by my estimation, the church was over 20,000. During festivals, Jerusalem would swell to 125,000. And it's multiplying greatly. So I will say, I don't have the exact numbers for you, but this seems like it's in the realm of possibility that out of all the population of Jerusalem, this is how many people came to Christ. And that's a threat. Isn't that amazing? And the nation will have the chance to repent. And if they don't, and they won't, in AD 70, they will lose their temple, and two million will be kicked out or killed. And the people of Israel will not come back until 1948. It's amazing. I'm going to say this very quickly because... I don't want to get into this too much. Uh, Somebody even this morning messaged me about what's going on with prophecy and things in the Middle East. Whatever your point of view, I will say Israel is right in the middle of it one way or the other. And I, you know, it's it's such a sensitive thing. I'm like, do we talk about it or not? I don't know. But for now, I'm just going to say that. That even 2,000 years after the destruction of Jerusalem, Israel is still in the center of the news it's just interesting one way or the other so I'm going to finish with these slides and just to kind of take some things from this passage um, some thoughts to consider the infant church was concerned about both spiritual and material issues it wasn't like they got to choose one or the other they adjusted their procedures and organizational structure as needed They were wise and responsive to multicultural issues. Their leaders were willing to turn over to others the authority for finding solutions. And all I'm trying to say out of that is like, get in the game, don't be a spectator, get involved. And if you see a problem, be a part of the solution. That's the biblical way to do it because leaders can't do everything. And if they did, the body of Christ would be wobbling, totally out of control. It just wouldn't be right. So God's called you to do something. God has given you spiritual gifts. God has prompted you with impulses of ministry. Follow up on those. Because if you don't, then we're all incomplete. Because we're a body together, right? And that's all I want to say about that. It's a team sport It's not a spectator sport. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We are grateful for it and uh, grateful for our body here, for our elders, for the people of of Frac, the whole body. Um, I am very grateful for our heart for missions, uh, that we are willing to put our resources behind people going to other cultures to have an impact. That's a marvelous thing. It's one of the strengths of our church for sure, and maybe we don't think about that enough. Father, continue to give us the heart for not only foreign missions, but missions in our community. Um, Not easy to go to another culture in our own community. But that's our calling. So prompt us, help us to not be comfortable or satisfied until we have gone and reached the people you want us to reach. Thank you for your word. I thank you for the testimony of the early church. And we're about to see it's going to get bloody, but it's because they were faithful. So like Steve Green sang, find us faithful. Amen.